is the Get a Game Plan podcast hosted by the Louisiana Governor's Office of Homeland Security and Emergency Preparedness, our GOSEP. I'm Mike Steele, the Communications Director for GOSEP. Thank you for joining us. We are examining a wide range of topics on this episode with some very special guests. Former FEMA Administrator Craig Fugate will join us for our first interview. We will look at a few important topics ranging from the future of emergency management to how flood insurance programs should be maintained in the future after some of the devastating events in recent years in Louisiana and across the country. We will also speak to Dr. Joseph Cantor, the Assistant State Health Officer for the Louisiana Department of Health. He wants to help you fight the flu. Many people may not realize how critical resources were in some areas, not just overseas, but right here in the U.S. You can be part of the solution by protecting you and your family. We hope you will use the information he helps provide. In addition to that, we will have information on resources you can use to help fight the flu and emergency preparedness information to help you get a go-bag ready in case you're ever part of an evacuation. get started with our interviews, we like to start each episode with an emergency preparedness tip. We often talk about the need to keep emergency supplies stocked year-round, but some of you may live in areas where you should think about putting some of those supplies in a go-bag. A go-bag is a collection of things you want to have handy if you're forced to leave or evacuate in a hurry. Your go-bag should be sturdy and easy to carry, like a backpack or a small suitcase on wheels. You'll need to customize your go-bag for personal needs, but some of the important things you need include bottled water and non-perishable foods such as granola bars, copies of your important documents in a waterproof container such as insurance cards, Medicare, Medicaid cards, photo IDs, and proof of address, a flashlight or hand-crank battery-operated AM-FM radio and extra batteries to go with those items, a list of medications you take and why you take them and their dosages, contact information for your household and members of your support network. That step is very important in case we lose access to our cell phones, cash in small bills, and other items to help you be self-sufficient for at least a few days away from home or work. That is today's preparedness tip. Now on to our first interview. Former FEMA Administrator Craig Fugate is very familiar with the Bayou State. Mr. Fugate was confirmed by the U.S. Senate and began his service as Administrator of the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, in May of 2009. At FEMA, Mr. Fugate promulgated the whole community approach to emergency management, emphasizing and improving collaboration with all levels of government, federal, tribal, state, and local, and external partners, including voluntary agencies, faith-based organizations, and the private sector, along with citizens. Under Fugate's leadership, emergency management has been promoted as a community and shared responsibility. FEMA has fostered resiliency, a community-oriented approach to emergency management, to build sustainable and resilient communities. Prior to coming to FEMA, Fugate served as director of the Florida Division of Emergency Management. Fugate served as Florida State Coordinating Officer for 11 presidentially declared disasters, including the management of $4.5 billion in federal disaster assistance. 
In 2004, Fugate managed the largest federal disaster response in Florida history as four major hurricanes impacted the state within a very short time. Mr. Fugate, thank you for joining us. Pleasure. We'd like to start by uh, letting the public know what you've been up to since you've uh, left FEMA. I've been busy. Um, probably two of the projects that I'm really uh, engaged in quite a bit is, uh, the first one is, um, I've joined the company as their chief emergency management officer, uh, working in the field of artificial intelligence and forecasting the impacts of natural hazards. The company's called One Concern is out in California. And what was really interesting to me was, you know, we've had we've had tools like Hazus, you know, we have the forecast from the Weather Service, but let's just take the example of Louisiana. How many times do we get flood warnings from the Weather Service, but we're not really sure how bad it's going to be? We know areas historically that have flooded, but let's think back a couple of years back when we had all the rain up in the central part of the state, Baton Rouge. You know, they're talking about feet of rain, and we start seeing places flooding that are behind levees that have never flooded. And now we got water up to the roofs. And one of the things we've been working on at One Concern is how do we take that forecast, take all the data we have, and not just confine ourselves to flood zones, but say if you dump 24, 30 inches of rain in an area, what's going to flood? And how impactful is that flood going to be? And can we get that information to emergency managers, not when it's happening and not where we just have river gauges, but where you know, that forecast comes out 36 hours out from the Weather Service about extreme impactful rainfall, what's going to flood? And give emergency managers more tools to say, these are the areas that are going to have impactful flooding we can evacuate. Stuff rain over a large area, you can't move everybody. But if That's I right. know I need to move 10% of that population, and that it's not just going to be streets that get flooded, but you're going to have water in their homes that could be life-threatening, or it's going to be moving so fast, it could be dangerous. That's a better product. Using artificial intelligence and machine learning, what our goal is to give emergency managers more time when these forecasts are coming out that are more actionable, more specific, so that we have options to look at evacuations. So we're not having to say we got to evacuate everybody, but we can tailor it to who's at the greatest risk. And because we're using machine learning and AI to do this, we can also use this as an exercise tool, use as a planning tool. We can ask questions in communities about what could flood if you get so much rain instead of just looking at our traditional flood maps, which also goes to the next group I'm working with, which is the Pew Trust. The Pew Trust after Hurricane Sandy began looking at the frequency of disasters and our tendencies to, to oftentimes rebuild almost the way it was. And they've been working on a flood prepared uh, communities initiative and focusing on what is the policy of the nation. And this is this is very important to Louisiana because we've had several rounds with the National Flood Insurance Program where it's either elapsed or they, they've reauthorized it, um, but it doesn't always take into consideration how it affects the current homeowners, but also new construction. And we continue to see, you know, construction in flood zones that's being subsidized by the Flood Insurance Program. That's, you know, $16 billion was forgiven last year, taxpayers' dollars. But we also got a lot of other people that they're already in their homes. They don't have any options if we make flood insurance unaffordable. And we really need as a nation to sit down and go, what is the right policy? How do we protect the folks that already are living in these areas? But how do we stop growing the risk unsubstantially? And I think part of that is really working with the private sector to get them to take a greater role in the insurance market. 
and ideally where the federal government takes care of the folks that can insure with private insurance, but can the private insurance take a greater role and help shape this discussion about where and how we're building? You know, that's that's a very important thing. Well, actually, both of those topics are very important. The modeling from the standpoint of, you know, it's one thing for us to prepare and to get the public ready for a hurricane or something that you have a couple of days to prepare for. But when you have a, a massive rain, flood, uh, flash flood type event, uh, you really don't have that time. So the more modeling tools that are available, you know, the better better off everyone will be. But going back to the to the insurance issues, you know, we see that problem here in Louisiana. Like a lot of people that work in the oil and gas industry, for example, they 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 almost have to live in some of these areas that are prone to these types of problems. And uh, so it's so important to see you know, solutions made. It's one thing to have a vacation home or a second home or something, you know, in a coastal region. But when you have to live in that region because of of work or, or, you know, your career, uh, it's a whole nother set of problems, I guess. Yeah. And I think this, this is one of the challenges of the flood insurance program is we're, we're basing our decisions on a lot of past data that's no longer staying current with the, with how things are happening. And I mean, I, in some cases, I think, you know, the city of New Orleans took the approach of we're not going to build a minimum standards of one foot above base flood elevation. We're going to build three feet above base flood elevation. People get so wrapped around the maps and there's so many arguments about what's in and what's out. The reality is the maps are the minimum. And we've seen how many times have you seen in Louisiana where we've had flooding outside of the flood zones in the special risk areas. Mm-hmm. And yet we're building, in many cases, home slap on grade. Now, how much would it have cost us on new construction if we had built that house two feet above the grade? And how many homes fewer would have flooded in that last event? And I think this is what I think we've locked ourselves into this 100 year flood zone and the flood maps that FEMA issues, which is really an insurance rate map. And we're kind of taking the approach well, if we don't live in that zone, uh, we don't have a problem. Well, that's not what happened up in Baton Rouge. That's not what's happening across much of the country. And in Louisiana, we don't have any margin of error. I mean, it's flat. So, you know, saying you're not in the 100-year flood zone is kind of a misnomer. Mm-hmm. Yet we see too many times, and I've been, in, you know, I, my sister used to live over on the West Bank. Uh, you know, I, my uncle and aunt lived in, in Metairie. I mean, we built slab on grade. Uh, hopefully the roach lowered in the house, and that drains out during the routine flooding. But we really need to understand what the risk is going forward and make good decisions about how we're building. That's right. This isn't about we're not building, but how we're building and adding a couple of more feet. And yeah, that may be in Europe on pylons, but if we're not doing that, you're just setting yourself up to flood in future events. And it's becoming unsustainable on the federal government side for taxpayers to keep paying out money. And so it, it, we can't keep doing what we've been doing. We got to do something different. But we can't say we're just not going to build. We have to find what is that long-term solution that allows us to keep a workforce engaged with affordable housing where they're needed, yet not lose their homes every time we get a big flood. With these current projects you were discussing, you still have close ties to those of us in the uh, emergency management field. In fact, you were probably on kind of the the, the backbone of that industry really uh, kind of moving forward. Where do you see the emergency management field going forward and what else needs to be addressed in the future? Well, you know, I still think of myself as an emergency manager. I'm just not in, in you know, a government role right now, but I, I still see myself as an emergency manager. 
I, I caution emergency managers. I think sometimes emergency managers get so wrapped around FEMA, and the Stafford Act, and declarations, and the job is so much bigger than that. I think it, it really goes back to um, one, our best approach to managing disasters isn't being prepared to respond to them. It's how we build and develop our communities based upon our risk. And I don't think emergency managers have always been seen as one of the major voices in that. You know, we tend to get regaled back to preparedness and response. But where and how we build communities, land use planning, building codes, have more impact on the outcomes of disasters than just about anything we do. So I think emergency managers, and we're seeing this across the country, you're seeing this with Brock Long talking about this, is we've got to be a stronger voice in how and where we build. And this is not a don't build, but it's how and where we're building so that we're not creating greater risk than the community can afford. And then the, then the rest of this comes back to, you know, uh, I've seen a lot of people that they get really good at what we do, and they still don't understand the why we do what we do. And I think that, you know, we talk about we do exercises. Well, the problem is a lot of people, they exercise, but they're exercising to what I call success. They, they always make the disasters fit their capabilities. Uh, they're always successful in their exercises. And they think that the exercise is just a, is, is basically to validate that they, their system works. I'm like, well, if you're really thinking about it, what an emergency operations center is, is a problem-solving engine. And if you're exercising to success, you're not building the capability to build problem-solving capabilities among agencies. Because if you just throw a bunch of agencies in the EOC, they're going to stay a bunch of agencies in a room. What you want to do is build a team. And so I, I try to really push this idea of exercises that were so big or the problem was so hard that individual agencies can't solve them. You had to work with the team. Mm -hmm. I think this is one of the things, if you look at how Governor Edwards came into office, I mean, he was hit first day he came in, you had flooding on the Mississippi. That's right. He's had, he's had major floodings. He's had shootings. But when you go in the State Emergency Operations Center, you don't have a collection of agencies doing what they've always done. He's got them working as a team. And, you know, Louisiana doesn't have a lot of, of you know, as far as state agencies go, it's not like you got just people laying around waiting to do something. So he's, again, with the budget challenges the state's had, he's had to maximize every state agency, both from the budget standpoint, but from the capabilities to respond to all these disasters. And he's been very successful, but he has a team. He doesn't have a collection of agencies. Um, and I think, you know, from Governor Jindal through him, that was the lesson Louisiana learned after Katrina. If we're a bunch of agencies responding, we're going to fail. But if we go in as a team, We'll do a much better job for our citizens. There's no doubt about it, and and you know both governors were very uh, hands on. They were at our office a lot. They were at the state EOC a lot. You know, handling these situations on their own on the EOC floor and uh, and and doing exactly what you said. So no doubt that is uh, that's something that that we have definitely strived to uh, improve over the years. You know, kind of going into our next uh, topic, I think you've kind of addressed this, but flooding is, of course, the number one threat in Louisiana. Uh, again, we've modified some of our statewide exercises to kind of take a look at these no-notice or very short-notice flood events instead of just kind of ramping up for hurricanes and other other disasters. Um, what do you think needs to be done uh, to address flooding? And if you could maybe kind of break it down, starting with the homeowner, what do homeowners need to do uh, and maybe up through the different levels of government? Well, this is the big lesson after the, the floods in Baton Rouge. Um, 
I don't care if you don't live in a flood zone, and I don't care if anybody's ever told you you don't need flood insurance. If you live in Louisiana, you need to have flood insurance That's because right. every time we get these floods, and here's a number that will get your attention. Remember Hurricane Sandy or Superstorm Sandy that struck the uh, New York, New mm -hmm. Jersey area? We spent about a billion dollars in individual assistance in about 32 days helping people with renter's assistance and place to live because they didn't have flood insurance. We did a billion dollars in Louisiana from that flood in the first 30 days. Hmm. Now, you're talking about Livingston Parish. You know, you're not talking about huge concentrated populations. But you had you know, 60, 70 percent of the homes flooding in, in, in the parishes. And because they didn't live in the quote unquote flood zone, they were sitting behind levees. They didn't have flood insurance. And they said, well, we were told we didn't have to have flood insurance. Well, it wasn't a requirement for your mortgage. But if you don't have flood insurance, you have no protection from rising waters. And the one threat we are seeing increasing across the globe, but particularly in the states, are these heavy rainfall events that are not tied to tropical storms. Mm -hmm. So there's no like we're watching it five days out. At best, the weather service may be giving us two to three days, but even that, it's not very precise. It's not like we know a storm's going to make landfall down, you know, in Orleans Parish or, or, or down around the, you know, the coastal areas. I mean, we, we know we're going to have a region of flooding. We know we could get up to these ranges, but when it starts falling, that's when we know what's going to get hit. That goes back to why I was so interested in this company about we're not going to forecast rainfall, but we can take those forecasts and give you the granularity of going, these are the neighborhoods that you're going to have five feet of water in, and these are the neighborhoods the streets are going to get flooded. Well, and, um, you know, in all honesty, the National Weather Service, it's very difficult for them to come out. My, my neighborhood, for example, caught 32 inches of rain. I, I live in Livingston Parish with the 2016 flood event. And and when you talk to the National Weather Service experts, it's very difficult for them to put a 32-inch rainfall on the forecast. So if, if you have a massive rainfall event that's predicted – you know, understand that these totals could could you know get pretty extreme. I did notice with uh, Houston, they were calling for 50 inches in in some areas, which kind of caught me off guard. I'd never really seen them kind of go out on a limb with some of those projections. But uh, uh, you're right; you see these events happening more and more across the country with you know flooding events and massive rainfalls. So it's something we definitely have to ramp up for from the the top to the bottom. Yeah, this is this is Kevin across the country, and I keep telling people. I said, you know, we oftentimes, as emergency managers, look at our past flood events to kind of know which areas are going to be in the worst shape, and we we kind of know that. Problem is, how many times have you heard the term a record-setting flood event? And if you're having a record-setting flood event, you got no past history to prepare for. It. Mm -hmm. And so that's again why, you know, at one concern, I. One of the things I know about weather service, and this is kind of true with the Baton Rouge, the models were showing the heavy rainfall event. Right. I think they just couldn't believe it was going to be that. I mean, uh, I think the weather services, they get more confidence in the models. The thing that I have seen is the models don't miss the big rainfall events. It's really getting down to granular. We're going to talk 24 inches, 36 inches. And I think the models are getting better at the extreme events. And if you're an emergency manager and we're dealing with a range of 20 to 36 inches, well, that's a hell of a lot of difference. It's really hard to go, well, what does it mean? We can actually show you uh, at one concern, we can start at 20 inches and move a slider across the screen to 36 inches to see what the differences will be. And 
again, these again, we're not forecasting the rainfall event. We're trying to turn that forecast into can we forecast the impacts so you can now do something about it in a response phase. But think about this from the planning standpoint. We could do the same thing in planning in Liverston Parish. We can say, okay, if we get another 24-inch rain event and we've done these mitigation projects, how did it change future floods? Mm -hmm. And we can build those projects in there and see what happens and, and, and look at what happens when systems do fail. No, no doubt. And, and kind of going back before we move on, uh, what you were talking about, you know, with people with flood insurance and, and the necessity of that, we're trying to change the mentality of people here in Louisiana when it comes to flood insurance. Instead of saying, uh, we don't like it when people say, they told me I didn't need flood insurance. You weren't required to have flood insurance as part yep. of your mortgage, but you should always have flood insurance. With that being our number one threat as a state, uh, that's yeah. something we're really trying to make people understand. And and it's just more affordable if you're not in a flood zone. You know, it, it, it's something that, that most you're people can. You're talking a couple hundred bucks. Right. So hopefully I mean, we can. Went, uh, if you went for the full coverage, you're, you're like around 300 bucks. Right. So think about it. You can protect your home and your contents for 300 bucks for flooding. If you don't have flood insurance, you lose everything. Yeah, hopefully we're starting to make some uh, headway with the public when it comes to that. Uh, the last thing we kind of wanted to talk about was we've seen some different emergency management strategies in recent years uh, coming down from Washington. Uh, any advice for the public on practical steps they can take just overall when it comes to emergency management and how to deal with some of these changes, I guess? Yeah, everybody's, it's a, it, it, if, you, if you really peel back everything, it's all the same stuff. It's pretty basic, but you know they tend to emphasize different stuff. And problem for the public is they hear different things and they go, oh, they talk about something different. It's like, we're talking about the same thing. First thing is do the financial piece, check your insurance, you know, make sure you got the right coverage, um, protect your home and your, and your valuables and, and do that before anything threatens. The second thing, which is not very expensive, because this is the thing I'm very sensitive to. You just can't do, uh, you can't build resilient communities for the rich and leave the, leave everybody else behind. And so a lot of working families, they don't have money sitting around to go buy a bunch of stuff to get ready for disaster. So I was like starting the first thing that's, that's, that's important, it's useful every day, it don't cost anything. And that's a family communication plan. You know, when the family's gathered up or for the holidays or a family event, get everybody's cell phone numbers, get everybody's Twitter handles, get all the Facebook pages. It's a lot of, you know, just have the, have the, Family communication plan says if something happens, we may not be able to call each other. Phones may be jammed, but I can update you on text messaging. I can update you on Facebook, let you know we're okay. I mean, that was a big problem in those floods. People were evacuated, scattered all over the place, and family members didn't know where people were. They didn't mm -hmm. know they had survived. So a family communication plan don't cost much. takes a little bit of time, but it can save a lot of grief when something happens, just being able to let folks know you're okay. Then the next steps are the very basic, you know, I love my cell phone and, and I can, I, I think right now, if I lost my cell phone, I, 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 I wouldn't be able to function. <laughs> of course I can, but that's one of our problems. We've become so dependent upon the internet and cell phones and tablets. And that's how we're, you know, we're getting all our news, and all our updates, and everything like that. We forget they go out in disasters, mm -hmm. have that battery, that portable radio. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to give you an example. When Hurricane Michael hit the Florida Panhandle, uh, one of the strongest storms to hit the uh, 
U.S., uh, so I think it's like number four. It knocked out everything, including all the cell service. Mm-hmm. There were parts that in the panhandle, they, the only information they were getting was from the local uh, public broadcast station that got up in their emergency bunker and started broadcasting. That was the only news people could get. And if you didn't have a radio, you didn't know what was going on. Mm-hmm. We saw the same thing in the wildfires in California. They lost over 200 cell sites in the fires. So, I, again, if you, don't, if you can't get information, you don't know what's going on. It gets real scary. No, and, no doubt about that. We lost one of the major carriers. Uh, had a, a pretty substantial uh, site knocked out in Baton Rouge, and that caused a, a lot of problems with the flooding. The other thing is make sure you know these phone numbers. We're so... Uh, We rely on our cell phones so much and have the contacts already pre-programmed a lot of times that if those phones aren't available, we don't know the traditional phone number like we used to for everyone. So uh, have copies of that and maybe keep it in your wallet, your purse or something to always have a backup. Well, that's the idea of getting that family communication plan, get that stuff written down, keep it somewhere safe. Um, And the last thing, I know people like to buy a bottle of water, but bottle of water is not a survival requirement. Mm-hmm. When I was growing up as a kid, we used to empty out the soda bottles and the and the milk jugs, fill them full of water, and throw them in the freezer. You leave a couple inches on top so they don't break, and we'd have ice cold water for free. Um, so I think again, we have made being prepared so expensive because we give people a shopping list, and working folks don't have that kind of money. So we need to go back to the stuff we used to do. Don't cost a lot. It's pretty straightforward. Um, they make sure we got stuff to get through the storm. But the last part is if you're told to evacuate, whether it's from an inland flood, from a chemical spill, or from a hurricane, have a go kit and remember to take your pets with you. Um, and again, this, you know, hurricanes, we, I think we get trapped because we're so used to hurricanes giving us days to get ready. Mm-hmm. But flash flooding, chemical spills, wildfires, none of those will give you days to get ready. And you got to have you know, the ability to get stuff quickly together and go because you may, they may be pounding on your door saying, you got to go now. And that ain't the time to go, what do I take? Well, sir, if the public wants to find out more about what you're working on or, or stay connected with you, any resources they can, uh, they can check out to do that? Yeah, well, they, they can go to our website, One Concern. Uh, that's, it's just spelled out, uh, oneconcern.com and you'll see what we're doing there. And, um, I'm pretty much, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. My Twitter handle is W Craig Fugate. Um, and I stay pretty active, but, um, I still see myself as an emergency manager. That's my passion. That's what I do. I look for opportunities to continue to see how we can better prepare the nation. And, uh, and again, if, if you want to see what I'm doing, uh, I'm pretty active on Twitter. Uh, you'll see what I'm thinking or saying or, or linking to. Good deal. Well, sir, thank you for your service. Thank you for your relationship with Louisiana over the years. And uh, we appreciate you taking time out for the show. All right. Well, it's a pleasure talking. Y'all stay safe and stay dry. Now we will move to the emergency resource segment for this episode. You may want to have a pen handy for this resource tip because it impacts nearly all of us. The Louisiana Department of Health has a great resource to help you fight the flu. Visit www.ldh.la.gov backslash fight the flu for more information and resources. 
There you can find out information ranging from an overview of this year's flu season based on reports to safety information for you, your family, schools, and businesses. That site again is www.ldh.la.gov backslash fight the flu. That's today's resource tip. Moving on to our second interview, Dr. Joseph Cantor is the Assistant State Health Officer for Louisiana Department of Health. Dr. Cantor serves as the key health official to address disease outbreaks and other health-related concerns. He most recently served as the Director of the New Orleans City Health Department and as the New Orleans Area Regional Medical Director for the State Health Department. Dr. Cantor completed his residency in emergency medicine at Louisiana State University Health Services Center in New Orleans and received his medical doctorate and master of public health from Tulane. Dr. Cantor, thank you for joining us today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. I guess if we could start out by uh, giving us your thoughts on the current flu season. Current flu season is going about as well as we could hope for, given last year we had a terrible flu season. Um, you know, we really got rocked hard last year and we put a lot of emphasis into being prepared and to promoting the flu vaccine ahead of time so we wouldn't get in the same situation. I'll give you some off the, off the cuff stats. So about this time last year, 12% of all uh, visits to healthcare providers were for what we call influenza-like illness or people that had flu-like symptoms. That number is about half, 6% right now. So we feel okay. Uh, we still want people to be prepared and we're still pushing the vaccine out pretty aggressively. A lot of people uh, may see, you know, stories about the flu, but they may not have a full understanding about how dangerous uh, it can be, not only for a community, but for individuals. I know last year there were reports about hospitals needing surge tents, which were almost like, uh, I guess, a, a military medical tent type set up to help deal with the, the incredible numbers of people coming through dealing with the flu, how, how much of a strain can that put on the medical community uh, if the public's not ready for flu season? No question. The strain can be uh, quite significant. A lot of people confuse the flu or uh, you know, the formal name is influenza with the common cold. Uh, and people you know, get a cold and think that they had a flu. They're actually um, quite different in severity. Cold lasts a few days. Um, people can often function decently well. A lot of folks can still go to work um, and the symptoms aren't terribly debilitating. The flu, while it can range in severity based on the patient and who that patient is, can be quite severe. It can land people in the ICU. It can put people on ventilators. Um, a lot of people, you know, get a cold and think they might have the flu. The, the, the flu oftentimes is much, much more debilitating. So when we plan out, uh, you know, emergency preparedness on a community or a statewide level, we're looking at very, very severe effects. For example, we work under the assumption that about 30% of the population would get sick, about 50% of those would seek medical care, and about 10% of those would be hospitalized, and there'll be a 1% death rate. You map that out over Louisiana. We're looking at, we have just shy of 4,000 inpatient hospital beds across the state now. We're looking at a need that doubles that. So we'd have to add another 4,000 surge beds. And what that can look like is what you mentioned, tents, or can look like hospital beds, 
inside um, hospital hallways or cafeterias. I don't think the public really understands what that looks like. Um, it can be quite off-putting. Does that prove the need for people as, you know, and individuals to take steps, maybe get the flu shot? Uh, they play a role in helping prevent these types of situations from, from uh, expanding. Uh, can you talk about the importance of, of personal responsibility? I can't say it enough. It, the flu is highly contagious. It's a respiratory virus. It spreads from breathing or coughing people or even being just close proximity, we think it can spread about six feet person to person. In mathematical models during um, an epidemic or, or a pandemic outbreak, uh, on average, a person with the flu would spread it to two or three additional people. And then that, you know, that all spreads quite quickly. The vaccine is, you know, tool number one in, in how we stop this. And, you know, on an individual level, nobody wants to get sick. And if you talk to someone who had the flu last year, they'll tell you, I'm never not getting the vaccine. All it takes is one season of getting the flu mm-hmm. to, to convince it. I had it myself a few years ago, and I'll never go another season without getting the vaccine. What shocks me is, um, you know, I would think that large organizations, businesses would take a greater interest in promoting and encouraging their team to get it because the absenteeism that would be faced during a larger pandemic could cripple organizations. Mm-hmm. 40% absenteeism. Um, so I would think businesses would would see a greater value in really pushing it hard. Certainly healthcare organizations have. Um, now I'd like to see private partners match that. A lot of the state agencies, you know, it's definitely played a role in, in our office because that would be uh, pretty crippling to have that many potential people out of work for an extended period of time. Is there one thing that you can kind of pinpoint? Because I know people do struggle with this, and you kind of hit on it earlier. You know, just about everybody I know has had some type of uh, cough or, or, you know, congestion over the past couple of weeks because of the rain and cold and kind of the back and forth weather we've been dealing with. Could you kind of highlight a couple of things that would um, maybe indicate to someone that they do have the flu and, and maybe something not quite as severe? Sure. Typically a high fever. Uh, we're talking a fever of 100.4 degrees or higher. Typically that, that lasts a few days. Um, a very severe cough. Those are kind of the hallmark signs of a flu. Um, you know, for most people to get the flu, it really puts them out. Um, a little runny nose, a little cough, um, feeling a little bit tired, but not really with a fever. That's more likely to be a cold. And when we say cold, you know, a cold can be any number of viruses or thousands of viruses out there that people get. You know, one that has a kid in daycare knows that. Mm-hmm. Um, the flu is a, is a very specific, specific virus that happens to be quite virulent. You know, it's got much more dramatic effects. So again, you know, a, a high fever that lasts more than a couple of days, um, a real protracted cough, those are the hallmark signs. Okay. And we know a lot of people have maybe a little caution about taking the uh, flu shot some of the misconceptions about the flu shot, anything you can tell us about that that maybe would uh, help the public uh, be at ease with that situation? Great question. We get this a lot. Tons of misconceptions out there about the flu shot. First and foremost, you cannot get the flu from the flu vaccine. The flu vaccine is inactivated. It's not a uh, potent virus. It's it's not a virus that has the potential to replicate. it's kind of like the, the skeleton of a virus with all the, the living pieces stripped away from it. 
all it does is it presents to your body the blueprint of what a real virus would look like so that your body's immune system can start developing antibodies to it. You cannot get the flu from the flu shot. What you can get sometimes is a little bit of a reaction. So when your body's immune system starts kicking into gear and building antibodies against something, you get a little bit, um, you feel maybe a little bit feverish just for half a day or something like that. Uh, you get a little bit tired. You kind of feel like you do at the very, very early stages of getting sick. That's just your body's immune system kicking into gear. That's your body building antibodies so that if it doesn't counter a real flu virus being spread from someone else a month later, it knows how to fight that. So that's what people, um, that's where that myth comes from is they get the flu vaccine and sometimes the next day you feel a little bit down. Mm -hmm. That's normal. That, that's, that's your body, you know, investing the energy to be able to fight the thing down the road. I know my doctor's office has, has kind of pushed uh, taking maybe a Tylenol or something along with the flu shot uh, to help Absolutely. deal with that. Absolutely. Take a Tylenol, take an aspirin or, a, or an ibuprofen. It's a, it's a small investment uh, that, that you're going to have return on down the road from being protected. Uh, so that's the first misconception about the flu vaccine. Uh, the second misconception about the flu vaccine is that only certain people should have it. Uh, really, anyone six months of age and older should get it. And, and again, you know, all it takes is, is one year to actually get the full flu virus. And, and to feel how bad it can make you feel for one to two weeks, and then you'll get the flu vaccine from there on after. Uh, so we are well kind of into the flu season now. Uh, what about anyone who hasn't gotten a flu shot yet? Is it too late to take one, or should they still uh, consider that that plan? Not too late. Absolutely not too late. The flu vaccine will give you protection for two to three months, um, and there's still plenty of time in, in the flu season left. If you map it to where we were last year, this was about the peak of the flu season last year, but we still had three or four months of activity afterwards. The people that get the vaccine now, they're still going to get a good two to four months of protection in there. That's well worth it. So still time to do it. Insurance coverage for these vaccines is really good. And you most of the time don't even need to go see a doctor. You can go to a commercial pharmacy and the pharmacist will give it. Really easy to get. No doubt. So before we wrap up, we uh, kind of highlighted the Fight the Flu website on LDH's website. Uh, any other resources, maybe social media or any other information or resources available to the public? Let's say on that Fight the Flu website, they post weekly updates of uh, statewide snapshots of where we are. It'll show you what we've seen in activity up until that point, and it'll map that to years past. You can map it past back through the past five seasons. I look at that every week, and that's a great snapshot to see you know, how we're doing to years past. All right. Dr. Canther, thank you for taking time out with us today, and we hope uh, the numbers continue to show a good season. Thank you very much. My pleasure, and I hope everyone has a healthy 2019. for joining us for our Get a Game Plan podcast. Please encourage others to share this resource and subscribe. We want to thank former FEMA Administrator Craig Fugate and Dr. Cantor for the information they provided today. Don't forget to check out the resources we mentioned today to help you and your family finalize your emergency plans. We also want to thank the Louisiana Organ Procurement Agency, or LOPA, for the use of their studio. 
Sign up to be an organ donor today. Find out more at DonateLifeLA.org. For more on most of the topics we talked about today, go to GetAGamePlan.org and don't forget to follow GOSEP on Facebook and Twitter. Remember, get a game plan. On behalf of the staff at GOSEP, thank you for joining us and we'll talk to you again in February. This podcast is produced in partnership with LOPA and the Gifted Life Podcast. Find out more about organ, eye, and tissue donation by listening to the Gifted Life podcast at thegiftedlife.org or download it from your favorite podcast app.